Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, I have Jason Livermore on the podcast. And if you're not familiar with Jason, Jason is a co-owner of The Blasting Room, which is an amazing studio based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And they tend to specialize in a lot of punk rock, and they've worked with some of the biggest punk names out there. Jason himself has worked with artists like Rise Against, No Effects, The Descendants, Propagandy, Hot Water Music, and so many, so many more. And in this conversation, we have a deep dive into Jason's process covering how he likes to approach making records. And we talk a lot about drums because Jason's a drummer, I'm a drummer, and I just love nerding out about that kind of stuff. But we talk a lot about his process when it comes to recording drums, how to get them sounding tight, what the best kind of tuning is, how to really make them sound big and fat. And then we also get into some cool stuff around guitar recording and how he likes to use multi-amp setups to find perfect blends of different amp sounds. We get into recording bass and I just think that if you're recording live music, especially if you're doing anything punk related, you're going to really love this interview because Jason has literally worked with some of the biggest names out there. And it's amazing to hear his process behind this stuff. And I think that for punk rock, having this reputation of being kind of a rough around the edges style of music, I think that when you hear Jason's process and how he puts so much care into getting the tones that he does and that kind of stuff, I think you're going to find it really refreshing. So with that said, let's just jump right into the interview. Jason Livermore, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing, man? I'm great. How are you? Doing great, man. For people who might not know your background and all the cool stuff that you're working on these days, can you give us that story about how you got into music and mixing and producing and engineering? I know it's probably a lot, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's been a while. Um, so I co-own the the Blasting Room studio here in Fort Collins, Colorado with Bill Stevenson, who's the... Uh, was the drummer for Black Flag and now still currently is the drummer for The Descendants and All. Um, we opened the studio in uh, 1994. Um, and I definitely was not an owner back then. I was probably the first intern. Uh, I moved out here to Colorado from Seattle, Washington. I was living at right before then. I was, I think I was 23 at the time. And I was in bands in high school and college. I'm a drummer and went to a recording studio when I was in college and we made a demo and I was kind of like, whoa, what is this place? You know, it was crazy. I'd never, I didn't really know about it. And uh, so I was very interested in it, you know, sort of right away after doing that. And uh, the guitar player who was in my band, he, um, He's like, well, hey, I have a four track if you want. And I'm like, what's a four track? He said, oh, it's, you know, a smaller version of what we just did in that studio. And you can, you know, use it how to learn. And I'm like, oh, cool. So he gave me his cassette four track and I bought like the modern guide to home recording handbook. And this was probably in like 92 or something. And just sort of just dived in from there. You know, I bought like a D112 and a 57 from... I don't even know if it was Guitar Center back then, some local music shop, and just started recording our practices and, you know, tried to figure it all out. And I kind of got hooked from there, and then I bought an 8-track after that. And then after I got out of college, I was um, 
I was living with the manager of the band uh, who was managing my band, and he also managed all. So he got them signed Interscope, and those guys opted to build their own studio as opposed to like you know spending half a mil or something back then. That's you know for a major label record. And um, he's like, "Yeah, these guys are going to move to Colorado and they're going to build a studio. You want to come with me?" And I was uh, a beer salesman right after college. I was selling selling beer for Miller Miller Brands, and it was a fine job, you know. But I was twenty three, and everybody else was forty, and I was like, dude, do I really want to, this is what I, I don't want to do this with my life. I got to try this, you know? So I moved out to Colorado and basically lived on the couch for months, like just soaking it in and trying to figure out, you know, how it all worked. And, uh, and Bill and Stefan were like really good teachers and like, they, they pretty much threw me into the fire, like right from the get go. Um, so we started out then with a Mackie. Uh, a couple Focusrite mic pre's and a 24-track uh, two-inch tape machine, an Atari. And so when we would do records, you know, when we started, it was a tape machine. It's not like how it is now. You can't just pass your files off to somebody and go, hey, can you do this for me? Hey, can you record this, you know, in, in the other room? Or it was everything was in one room. And so we would record, you know, the band by day and usually the vocals by night and then do editing or like, comping or tuning or whatever you could accomplish like overnight so they would you know they would go hey we're going home you know record this guy's backing vocals you know so i i just fully got thrown into the fire on how how to record (laughs) from them and then basically you know when those guys would start going on tour i would go on tour with them a little bit um for like the first little bit i was their monitor engineer and i did that for a while but after a bit i got more and more interested in the studio and sort of less and less on like, you know, being a roadie and they would leave and I would just go into the back room and find tapes. Like we had, you know, a tape vault, throw these tapes up and start just messing around with them. And I, there was one band that I really liked when I was in college that Bill and Stefan had recorded called my name. And I found like one of their first demos and I threw it up and I, I mixed it. And then when I was finished, I compared it to the actual demo and i was like holy shit mine's mine's better <laughs> you know <laughs> and i played it for them bill and stefan after they left and they're kind of like hey i think you should stay home now and just work at the studio you know so i just <laughs> i you know it's obviously like a learning and growing process of trial and error and you know you got to go full force into it but i kind of had a knack for it and when i get into something i just i get tunnel vision and i just you know, 80 hours a week, just go for it until you figure out what you're doing. That was, that was kind of my start. <laughs> a long-winded way to tell you about my start. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but I think that that's like the way a lot of people in this industry do it. You know, it's like, you, you have to, you have to want it that bad that you're willing to put in that time and just work your ass off for it. And, you know, just constantly be learning. And I'm sure to this day, you're still probably learning all sorts of new stuff as well. Right. Yep. Yep. Still. I mean, the longer I work at it, the more I realize that, like, not only did I probably not know what the hell I was doing for the f- longest time, and maybe I still don't, you know, but it's like the more you realize 
that you don't know as much as you think you do. <laughs> it's like as weird as that sounds, you know? I was going to say, that, that's got to be like a bit of an imposter syndrome the kind of thing, right? Because like, obviously you've been doing it for so long, so you, you clearly, clearly know what you're doing, right? But it's like, there's always this like, qu- this thought in the back of your mind that there's like a better way or someone else is doing it differently or you're looking up to other people. Oh yeah, I'm always trying new stuff, always. And I have buddies, you know, in the industry and we're always like, hey, what limiter are you using now? Oh, hey, what's your chain like? Oh, have you ever tried switching the order on this? You know, just all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And then you, you'll you'll stumble into things and things are like, okay, this works. I'm going to use, I'm going to do it like this. And you'll do it like that for months and it'll, it'll work great. And you just kind of get bored. And you're like, I got to try something different, you know, and then you'll start switching things out. And it's always constantly evolving and... Uh, just to kind of keep yourself interested, I suppose. Yeah. half of it, you know? <laughs> well, that, that's what I was going to say. It, it, it's, I feel like a lot of time that self, self-doubt comes in once we've got ourselves in like a bit of a rut where you're doing the same thing all the time. And you're just like, there's probably like someone else is doing it differently. I got to learn how they do it because that's going to change my world. And all of a sudden I have this new tool or something, right? And it's like, I mean, yeah, you've been doing it right the whole time all, all along. It's just everyone has a different method, right? And that, that's- Yeah, I don't think there is a right you know, it's it's music, and at the end of the day, nobody has any clue what you did to get that sound to come out of the speakers. All they hear is the sound that comes out of the speakers. There's no right way to do it, you know? Of course. So, there's, you just do what you want. Do what you can, <laughs> what works best, which is different every time, almost, it seems like. Yeah. You know? So, do you feel like when you made that that mix that was better than the demo— do you feel like that was the like a pivotal moment in your career where you were like, I know how to do this? No, no, because I still had no idea what I was doing. That was way early, you know. I was just had it in ear to, you know, put things where I wanted or add more bass or treble. Just really, really mundane mixing. But I, I just at least knew, okay, I can do this, you know, because I used to love this band and I just did something that I thought was better than what they had before. And I don't really know what I'm doing. So therefore that just got me more interested. I don't think it was like a pivotal point. It just got me deeper, deeper in to be like, I, yeah, I can totally do this, you know? For sure. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like one of the lessons that one of my early mentors told me. And he, he was talking about how like sometimes knowing the like quote unquote rules of audio it can be like to your detriment because you get like so boxed into it. Whereas like some people, especially these days where like technology is so accessible can get amazing results without really knowing the technical side of things because they're just, they're, they're honestly just listening to it like a fan as opposed to being so technical about it. So yeah, there's always that, that uh, balance of, you know, just separating yourself from the, from the technical side of it and enjoying it as like a fan would. Right. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I didn't go to school for, I went to, to college for marketing. <laughs> it definitely wasn't for recording. So, I mean, the Bill and Stefan who work here, well, Bill does, Stefan doesn't work here anymore, but um, they pretty much went at it the same way I did. They were in their band and they would go to studios and sort of just become disillusioned at like the end result and be like, you know what, I'm going to do this myself. And so they would draw from their past people that they worked with to get their knowledge and I got my knowledge, you know, my initial knowledge from them. And then I've worked with, you know, n- numerous other people who I've sort of cherry picked their methods. Like, Oh, this, I love the way this guy works, but I can't do what he does on that. That's just not my 
style or, you know, but I do like this little aspect. I'm going to use that, you know, and then you work with enough people and you're kind of like, oh, everyone does a different thing. And they're, I mean, their end results aren't like terribly different from each other, you know, but maybe how they get there is. And so you just figure out all these different methods that you can use at work and that's your, that's your style, you know, that's your, then it's yours. Of course. Well, I mean, like before we started recording, I was telling you that that's basically why I'm doing this podcast, right? It's like you kind of just learn different different people's techniques. And then from that, you're like, oh, I, I like that idea. Like, I'll try that out. And you kind of cherry pick to see which ideas work and which ones don't. And from there, you kind of just find your own your own workflow, your own system, right? Yeah, basically, your 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 style or at least I'm saying my style is a giant hodgepodge of of my favorite people that I've worked with that I've sort of melded into my own thing. I mean, you can do that to, you know, to an extent, but what you can't do is change the way that your brain hears things. You know, I can use someone else's method that I really like, and it's not going to sound anything like theirs because my brain tells me, oh, this guitars are supposed to sound like this. They need more trouble than these do, or, you know, whatever it is that your brain is doing you could try to get away from that but you know if you go back and you review your past work for years it's all fairly similar because it's your brain telling you what to do it's it's hard to change you know for sure but it's also like when you look back at some of those older mixes and that kind of thing too you also kind of sometimes it, it isn't exactly the same because you're realizing like how how overcomplicated you made something or you know that that kind of thing right no, no, you're right. You're right. But there's always kind of like a, a theme, I, I suppose, you know, I actually, so there's a couple guys who are going to do a blasting room movie. Um, and they've been working on it for a handful of years. It should hopefully be out by the end of the year. Um, but I just mastered for vinyl for the Kickstarter. Uh, I, there's like maybe 14 songs that we have done spanning back. 20 some years, you know, and I just had to master all those songs together for vinyl. And that was kind of a trip for me. Uh, Cause it's exactly what we're talking about. It's like old work versus new work, you know? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, they're different, yeah, you know, but not terribly different. I remember yeah. that, you know, <laughs> but, but you're right though. It's like, you could literally clone someone's signal chain and whatnot. And it will always end up being different because it's just like, it's your, your perception of it and it's what you your think. Perception. It needs, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. You had mentioned the idea that uh, you were a drummer and that's, that was your primary instrument. Uh -huh. um, and I, I'm a drummer as well. Obviously Bill Stevenson's a drummer as well. So, you know, I feel like drums are one of those things that are probably a, uh, a very important instrument to you when it comes to recording. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your drum tones and, and how you like to go about getting them. No, it's probably a broad question because there's probably a yeah, lot to obsess I mean, over. It, it, <laughs> no, it, it is a broad question, but you're right. Like drums are probably inadvertently the thing that I focus on one of the most. Whenever I listen to anyone, hey, someone will be like, hey, can you check on my mix for me? I'm like, sure. And I'll check it out and be like, the kick drum's too bright. The snare's too boxy. The overheads are, you know, like, and it's like, oh, wait, there's more to this mix than just drums. I got to figure, you know, <laughs> but I do, I focus on drums a lot. Um, getting drum tones themselves, well, it's first deciding what drums are appropriate for whatever music or song is going to be recorded. Like, that's the first thing, you know, like determining what, what the drums are supposed to what their function is in the song, uh, 
to choose the drums, basically. Uh, and so if we're not going to go back far enough to be like choose like changing the actual drum parts, just the drum tones, then we in the building here, I don't know, we might have eight drum kits and 30 some snare drums. And, you know, so we have a big, big bunch of drums to choose from. And I'll just, you know, I've worked on tons of different bands, tons of different projects, styles and whatnot. So I'll know, okay, yeah, this is like, you know, a punk band. They probably want their kick drum pretty tight, you know, so I'll use a 22 and I got this really nice, like Noble and Cooley. And I know it's got a nice click and it's tight enough. So we'll try that kick drum. And, you know, I think the Ludwig Black Beauty would be perfect. And, you know, these toms work really well. So I, I, I'll just, I have stuff in my head and from past experience where I'd like to start. And I'll get all that set up and get it mic'd up and whatnot. And I'll probably play myself and go, okay, that sounds fine. And then once I'm got everything dialed in, bring the drummer in and see if it's, if it still works for him, you know, sometimes he'll sound great, you know, wildly better than when I was playing. And sometimes it'll be like, Oh, he doesn't hit his snare hard enough. I hit my snare much harder. This snare drum is not going to work for him because it's tuned too low and he doesn't play hard enough. So he need, we need to tune that snare up higher. So his like, if he's not going to give it enough energy, it's still going to speak, you know, those kind of things. So you get something that works for the guy that he's comfortable, that makes him sound like himself. And then after, you know, all that's done, then you might have to go into a coaching mode. If if that's still not working, like a little junior drum lesson. Okay. Look, (laughs) The snare sounds broken. It sounds like your stick's broken. Why? Well, let's let's look at how you're hitting the snare drum. You know, like you have to put half the stick on the rim and half on the middle of the head at the same time. You don't have to kill it. You don't have to hit it too soft or too hard. Just even, you know, you get... And after like a day of recording, usually people will get over their nerves and they'll start recording much, much better. And you may even go back and redo the first couple songs you did because they're like, I don't know what I was doing those first two days or whatever. I was really nervous. And you're like, yeah, you were, you know. And once you start working with someone, you get more comfortable and they start playing better. And that, that, that's how you can dive in. Um, that's kind of like the general big over, overall picture. I mean, as, as far as like miking and all that, uh, there's so many different ways to do it and so many different amounts of mics you can use. I started out fairly basic and then have sort of graduated on to using way too many microphones in like the sense that you'll have different scene changes if you want to. You can change them later, especially with Pro Tools or there might be a couple oddball songs in a recording session that you're like, oh, these room mics didn't work, but those ones way out there sound awesome. And instead of like kind of slowing the session down too much and trying to figure all that. It's just kind of like throw it all up and sort it out later. And a lot of people will be like, Hey, why are you using so many mics? Is, that's not going to phase up. And you're like, no, it probably won't phase up and I'm not going to use them all at the same time, but I do want to have the option of using them if I want, you know? So that's one way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, man, you, you, you touched on something that I think is really important. And this was definitely one of the lessons that I remember learning from one of my early mentors, Jack Richardson. And he talked about how, um, the, one of the first things he would do with every drummer before they even put mics on was like, he would always watch the drummer just hit the drums Yeah, and he would, you know, like move snare drums, like physically around just so that they would hit it in the center. You know what I mean? And like, just be like, okay, this is how you're going to hit it so that we get the best sound for the record. And, you know, and, and it's, and it's very interesting because 
yeah, so many drummers have different angles and different weight, like different velocities that they hit. And I think also some people have this perception of like their drums are going to hit super hard on the recording. So they like they actually like physically pound the shit out of their drums. But in in and doing that, they choke off. Happened. Yeah. In, yeah. They choke off the skins and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it's really interesting just to like analyze drummers and their approach because, yeah, you're right. You sometimes do have to give them that lesson as the expert here who could who could say like, I know what you're going for, but you just have to like ease off like 20 percent. Right. Now. Yeah. No, I'm t- I'm totally fortunate too to like, like now that I've worked for a long time, the majority of drummers that I record are f- very competent and very good. So it's like less and less of that. But early on in my career, you know, when you were just starting out recording like local bands or you know bands that didn't have enough like that much money, and that's why they were coming to you because you didn't know what you were doing and they didn't know what they were doing. You know, so that's when it was really like oh you had to figure out how to get your game on, how to get the drums to sound good. It was how to teach people how to play drums, like, you know, how to how to actually not just play the song, but hit the drums in, in the manner that made them speak and sing. You just, like you're saying, you can't just hit the crap out of them. It's just going to choke all the tone out and just sound like tick, 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 you know, like, this is a boof, boof. <laughs> yeah, it may look cool live, but... It may look the- uh, totally, but it's not going to work a lot of times in the studio, but yeah. And a lot of this stemmed back from recording to tape where musicians, in my opinion, were better than they are now because they had to be, you had to play your song from top to bottom for the most part. Um, And if you couldn't do that, you weren't in the band, you were selling the t-shirts. Now, you know, there's one guy in the band who's writing all the songs, doing all the demos. And there's the other people in the band who, probably shouldn't be in a band but they're in the band you know and they're not, they're not that good but we have the tools now to to fix that very easily and very well so it's kind of a different uh different ball game now than it used to be yeah it's kind of funny too because drums in some ways are i kind of think of them almost like vocals where people are kind of realizing like oh things just get triggered after the fact they had some samples and so like some people don't put the effort into trying to record drums because they just know it's going to be replaced. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame because you obviously want to preserve like a natural sound as much as possible. Right. Yeah. For the most part, like, you know, it depends on the, on the style of music, but you know, if you're talking about like heavy rock or metal, people are so used to hearing that sort of overtly triggered sound that sometimes people aren't even playing the drums anymore. We're just using MIDI, you know, which sounds like real drums. Now, if you know what you're doing, it's, it's kind of yeah. wild. <laughs> well, it's it's funny you mentioned that too because you guys have the blasting room drum sample, yeah, uh, pack that you put out, right? So, um, yeah, it's kind of like there you go. You can get the sound of the blasting room <laughs> in your in your home studio. You know, you you absolutely can. And I try. I I mix stuff from people all over, all over the world, in different you know states of I don't know. However, they get it done, recorded, but. I'm actually pretty stoked on that thing because now I can fall back. I mean, if I need to, something that I didn't track, you know, turn like, let's say a snare drum into MIDI and use my sounds that I got to have like my snare drum on their thing. I don't want to like, you know, change their recording completely, but if they're coming to me, they probably want, you know, my taste and my, my sound. So that makes it a lot easier sometimes. Yeah, I bet. And yeah, how cool is that that you've got a representation, like a, a MIDI version of your own studio? So like, yeah, there you go, right? Yeah, it's, it's, 
it's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of touched on tuning and how you'll change tuning depending on how heavy someone's hitting their drums as well. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I usually like sort of a deeper, thuddier drum sound. Um, and so I'll use thicker heads a lot of times and tune them down lower and use duct tape or whatever means of dampening to get there. But if you got a guy who doesn't hit hard enough, that doesn't work for them because it kind of lowers the volume, like the energy of the drums a little bit when they're like that. So you have to determine how much is well, how much what the instrumentation is like of the band, how much is going to cover up these drum sounds and how bright or punchy they need to be to cut through however many guitars, you know. So you have to determine that. And then you can figure out, do I need thick heads, which are going to be you know, darker and more contained, or do I need thin heads that you don't need to hit as hard and they, they're bright and they speak more and they ring more. And like, sometimes you'll associate ring with energy. So if somebody isn't playing hard enough, the ring will kind of make it sound like they're playing harder. And yeah, it all comes down to the player really, you know, you can start in kind of a general spot, but you have to, you have to tune it, tune the drums for the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very true because yeah, I think a lot of people tend to just think of drum tuning as just kind of fitting the aesthetic of the mix, but it, it really is more to do with like how the drummer is hitting it. That it's it's that's how it's reacting. Right. Yeah. Like if I sat down and played a, a drum by myself, I would put the snare drum in in a particular spot that felt comfortable to me, and then maybe the the guy with the next drummer would come in and he'd be like, oh, I don't like this. I'm like, no, the snare sounds perfect. Don't touch it. He goes, well, when I hit it, it doesn't give me enough response. I don't get the stick bouncing back the, the right way, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so I'll ha we'll have to tune the drum so they are used to, you know, feeling the response of the drums that they're used to, even though it doesn't, maybe doesn't sound the best, but if they're playing better, that's generally better than sounding better. Fair, yeah. It's interesting because I remember sitting side stage at, at a rise against show a while ago. And, and I remember looking at the drummer's snare drum and he had it on quite an angle at that time. I was like, how does he, how does he play like that? <laughs> I, I, I was doing that exact thing last night. <laughs> no, rise against played in Denver last okay. night. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> I was on stage watching Brandon just going, wow. Yeah. He definitely has a unique setup. Unique, but a lot of a lot of that kind of angly snare drum thing that we're talking about he had um, he had a wrist problem maybe like 15 years ago that he had to have surgery for. He was getting, I don't know if it was like a t tendonitis gone like overtly bad from playing so much, but he had to put a snare drum further away from him and angle it up just to avoid wrist pain. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering about that, but then, I, then a part of me was like, okay, so if he's hitting it like that, like how is how are you getting like the massive sounds on those records is it like samples heavy or is it like no he's an amazing drummer and he and it looks weird and it's hard for me to play at his drum set but to him that he gets beautiful sounds you know like they're perfect yeah perfect sounds yeah, yeah. that's cool yeah and it's you know like the, like you said too it's just you know when it's somebody's comfort zone you know when they're just when they're comfortable playing they're gonna play better and it's gonna sound better yeah, yeah. I mean, you you want to put things where you're like, this generally sounds good, and I know it sounds good. But if you can't, if you're not comfortable with it, you're never gonna give me your best performance, you know. And so the performance generally trumps the sound, for sure. Yeah. Um, we kind of touched on this topic a little bit, but 
you know, when you listen to a lot of like you obviously work on a lot of punk rock stuff. And when you listen to a lot of punk from like the early 2000s or 90s or whatever, there was a tendency back then for like bands to kind of lean a little bit more on like the raw, loose kind of sloppy side of things, you know, so to speak, in regards to timing and pitch and that kind of stuff. And the modern punk sound just seems to be the complete opposite of that. Everything is super polished, super edited, that kind of thing. I'm wondering, I'm curious to know, like, personally, where do you stand on the productions that you like to work on? Like, where, what, what do you, what do you tend to lean towards? I tend to lean towards whatever makes me feel something. You know, if it, if the band sounds better, like, let's say Metallica, like, they're, they were kind of the originators, if you will, of tight and polished, you know, like, of hard rock. But when you listen to it, you were like, God, that is badass. Listen how tight they are. You know, like how cool it is. And then it's sometimes, you know, it's the opposite. It's like a band is wild and they're crazy and they're not playing together at all. But you're just like, holy shit, I want to break something. I want to drive fast right now. Like, you know, and it just, you have to, you have to, you have to feel something from the music. So you have to de- determine what it is that the band is doing or not doing that makes you get that feeling. You know, a lot of times when we're tracking or getting ready to track a band now, we'll do pre-production a lot and record them playing live with no click a handful of times and go, okay, the song's generally about this tempo, but you guys always speed the chorus up and you always slow the verse down and the bridge when you go to halftime is a little quicker kind of thing. And then you're like, well, is that good? Or, you know, or is, or is that bad? Like, and then you put it all on one tempo and you're like, no. That is lame. There is no feeling there whatsoever. I don't really want to record them without a click. So you'll end up making a tempo map beforehand. and be like, you know, the verse goes 120 and then the chorus is going to go 124. Then we're going to drop it back down. And then like when you go to double time, we're going to have to, you know, change the tempo a little bit. So the recording isn't stagnant. It's like it mimics a live performance, but with a little bit more control than just letting them letting them run free, you know, and go, why is the last course 10 dB, you know, or, or 10 BPM quicker than the first? Like, oh, that was a mistake. They got excited. You know, unless, like, that's the intended thing, and you're like, holy shit, that's so awesome. They got so fast at the end. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> but it's, like, way, ways to, like, manufacture that with some control. You can do it with, like, tempo mapping. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a great, great way to go about doing it. So are you always doing maybe not always but are you generally doing pre-production on most of the records you work on uh not all of the records but i would say 80 percent of them gotcha yeah i mean we used to do pre-production a lot a lot probably 95 percent of the time but now um with pro tools and everybody's got their own home thing and every it's like somebody in the band's got a you know, a computer and they've, the bands made demos already in the computer. So you can get their, their demos from their pro tool session and kind of be like ahead of the curve and go, okay, I got your demo and, and you know, this and this works. You can, you can analyze it ahead of time without actually being like, you know, pre-production with the band in the room kind of thing and start there depending on like how much time you have. Gotcha. You had mentioned that you like recording bands with a click track, or like maybe, maybe is it something you generally do all the time? It's I don't do it all the time, but I would say eighty-eight percent of the time, ninety <laughs> gotcha. percent of the time. You know, I've done 
probably more so in the past when bands were really good and bands would actually play live together. That's when you're more, yeah, these guys could play together without a click and it feels great. But it, it, there's not that many bands anymore. I'm not saying all bands, but n- not nearly as many people play well together. You, you just live with no click. Like they, like it seems like people used to, you know? Bands are writing songs now with a click track. You know, they're playing concerts with a click track. It's like everybody's so used to that sound. It's just different now. <laughs> yeah. So because people are used to that sound, do you find that you tend to edit your drums to be like pretty tight to the grid because people are used to that? Or do you prefer a little bit more loose? Well, I just, so I'll tell you, like, so the better the drummer, the more off the click track they can get off the grid or whatever you want to call it. And you don't have to like move it, you know, the worse the drummer, it's almost like you have to make them tighter to the grid to make their performance feel better. At the end of the day, it's all how, how do these drums feel? Like, is this pushing and pulling against the grid or the click? Okay, in solo, maybe it's like, ooh, they rushed. Ooh, they dragged. I don't like that. But then you put the whole band on and you're like, oh no. Like, you can see they were like all looking at each other right there and they just went, yeah, boom, on the downbeat. And yeah, they're all late, but they're all late together and it sounds heavy as hell like that. You, you, you have to take all that stuff into account you know, when you're doing editing or for sure. Yeah. I mean that, that modern sound, like you're right. Like so many people have heard that, especially with like, especially with heavier bands, I find it's just like so robotic sounding to some degree, but yeah, I definitely, I I definitely grow tired of the perfection. Now I want to say like after tape, nothing could be really perfect when you were working on tape. It was you tried your best, but you couldn't be perfect. Then Pro Tools came along and it was like, hey, we can be perfect. Cool. You know, and then everybody was editing and it was tight as hell and everything. And I feel like a lot of people now, it's just, there's no feeling to it. It's like, what is this, like a tightness war? You know, like, oh, we're so tight. Check it out. We're all playing together at the same time. It's like, who cares? That doesn't make me feel anything. I, I You know, and so I think it's coming back around where it's like, People are going, no, we don't have to be that tight anymore, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. When I was checking out the Blasting Room Facebook page, there were a bunch of posts where there were pictures of uh, people using Evertune guitars in the studio. <laughs> yes. And I'm Evertunes. curious to know, like, is, I mean, I guess that's also part of this, like, tightness thing, no, right? This, it, you're, you're absolutely correct. So when we first started making, like, I don't know, when we were trying to be, like, competitive professional recordings... Part of that is being able to get your album in tune. And so I spent years of my life recording guitar players who weren't that great and trying to get them to be in tune. So it was either play four chords, stop tune, play four chords, stop tune. And if they couldn't do that, play one chord, stop tune. If they couldn't do that, it was like, oh God, what are we going to do now? Kind of thing. And it would take a long, long, long time to get ready albums done and so when the evertune came out it would it literally cut my recording time in half in half so i was i was all in and then you have to determine after you know a a bunch of records like that well now all our records are in tune how do i feel about that (laughs) hmm you know that nobody's sharp and nobody's so then you start have to go okay well what what should i do about that 
okay, well, maybe I'll use like a real guitar in certain spots of the record where like the tuning is either supposed to be sort of errant or it's not like rubbing so raw, you know, the wrong way with the other instruments. You're like, oh, it's so bad, you know, like, so you kind of have to pick and choose. And then, you know, obviously the better the guitar player, they don't need to use the Evertune. It's, It's not so much a guitar won't stay in tune. It's like kind of like the drums where if you haven't learned how to fret the guitar properly, if you're pushing your hands into the into the fretboard so hard, that causes like you could push your pinky down or whatever finger on the fret and put and make your guitar a note go sharp by like five to thirty cents by how much pressure you put on the fretboard. And so if you're nervous and you're grabbing, you know, your guitar's not in tune, even though it is in tune because you haven't learned how to play the guitar properly. So the better the guitar player, he doesn't need the Evertune because he plays in tune and whatever's out of tune is still fine. But the worse the guitar player, the more he needs the Evertune to make him sound like he knows what he's doing. You know, it's the same thing as like sampling and editing. It's like, it's the same concept. And then you, you, you kind of have to, you have to evaluate the source and how much help somebody needs or what kind of feeling you want these performances to elicit from yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of times with guitar, people always say that like, you know, if you use a thicker gauge of string is generally going to hold in tune a lot better because it's not going to bend as easily, you know, has that changed your, like with the Evertune, has that changed your, your feelings towards string gauge and that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like thinner string gauge sounds much better. Well, I don't want to say sounds much better. It's just you generally brighter. Like, the thinner the strings, the brighter the guitar sound generally is. Um, and oftentimes, we're always like, oh, this is too dark. I need to brighten it, you know, oftentimes. So thinner gauge strings that don't go out of tune will give you that desire. You know, the, the thicker ones will sound darker and chunkier, depending on the style of music. That's either good or bad. Generally bad for for me, but... Um, there's a, a YouTube guy that I watch sometimes named Rick Beato, and he has this. He had a really cool video where he went through what we're talking about right now, and he changed between nines all the way up to like twelves. I think he had even lower. I think I feel like he had like sevens or eights or something like that. Yeah, I remember seeing this. Okay, he, but he went through and he had all these different strings, and he played the same thing, and then they went back to back, and you could hear it just plain as day. Oh wow. It was like a different amp almost, you know, it was like the string gauges radically changed the tonality of the guitar. So, yeah, if you got the Evertune and the tuning doesn't matter because it's not going to go out of tune, then just pick the string gauge that you like the tone of <laughs> as, <laughs> as opposed to like these won't go out of tune. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. So, I mean, you, you've had the opportunity to work with like pretty much not, not every major punk band, but a, a big share, a big share of them, right? A fair amount of them, yeah. yeah. And a lot of them are repeat clients of yours as well. So I'm curious to know when dealing with these bigger acts that have a big catalog and, you know, they keep coming back to you time and time again. How do you find the like, what's your process between balancing kind of their old sounds and giving it that kind of like sound that they may be known for versus a little bit more of that modern sound? Like, where do you strike that balance there? Hmm. I'm not totally sure how to answer that. You know, it's uh it's kind of a conversation. I mean, not it depends on the songs and what the songs call for, I would say. 
You know what I mean? Like, if they had written some sound- songs that had like an older vibe to them, then and everyone was like, "Hey, we want this to sound old." Then you'd maybe like make a conscious decision to get those kind of sounds and that kind of performance, you know. And if they're like, "Yeah, we're doing the same songs that we've always done, but we want it to sound like they're new." Well, okay. Well, how can we make them sound new if it's the same song? You know, we could try, you know, different amplifiers, different drum tones, maybe different tempos, different keys. There's all kinds of different stuff, you know, or or we could edit this tighter, or we could use more compression, you know, whatever it is. But it's generally like a conversation that you'll have with the band. And if you don't have that, you sort of get a feeling after you've worked on the record for a bit. Sometimes you just kind of fall into something. You're like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. I like this. Let's do that. You know, if you're just still searching. But like a a lot of times you kind of want to try to determine some of that beforehand, like a goal, you know, of everyone. Yeah, I'm always fascinated about that. You know, like especially like a band like No Effects, for example. It's like, you know, they're I feel like their catalog has just become more and more polished over the years. But 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 it still sounds like No Effects. Right. So, you know, it's like I think of bands like that. And it's like, well, how do you go into a project like that and think like, OK, we're going to give it the modern take or do like, you know, that, I guess it's all conversation. Well, it, it totally is, because some of that stuff like I, I've done mixes for Mike and he's like, nah, this sucks. I'm like, why? It sounds too good. You know, and I'll be <laughs> like, sounds too good. He's like, yeah, yeah, I want it to sound shitty. Like, like we don't know how to play or whatever. I'm like, OK, you know, and then you'll have to kind of like put your head in a different spot and, you know, go try to figure out what that was. You know, I remember one song I did and he had recorded one guitar and I was like, ah, fuck one guitar. I'm going to have to put this in mono. I don't want to do that. I'll, I'll pan it to the side and I'll put a delay on the other side. It'll make it sound stereo, you know, sound bigger. And he's like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, if I wanted two guitars. I would have recorded two guitars. I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, I left it in mono because he wanted it to sound like that. So, (laughs) you know, obviously stuff like that is an easy fix. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. I mean, every artist has their own vision of what they want it to sound like. And, you know, there's uh, some people that just know what their band, what their band sound is. And and you just leave it untouched, right? Oh, Oh, yeah. Or they just have an idea about certain songs that they've written. Like this one, I want it to sound this way or like. Like, it reminded me of an old song we did and, you know, whatever it is. But oftentimes, if you have that information ahead of time, it makes your job easier. (laughs) For sure. Well, speaking of guitars, when you record guitar, are you generally the type of person that likes to use one amp or do you tend to split out sounds and, you know, maybe get a clean and dirty at the same time kind of thing? Or like, I'm a I'm a multiple amp guy. Um, Generally, it's like I'm using two amps together all the way up to maybe like five amps together to get like i don't know the desired effect like you're saying like maybe one set cleaner to get like the bright pokey notes to be poking out and clear and bright and one set dirtier to give you more sustain and i'll throw up a lot depending on how 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 much time i have you know maybe 10 amps and i'll have them all on faders all going knowing i'm not going to use them all but they're all going in. I'll sit there and go through combinations of these amps to figure out which ones blend together. Because sometimes if you get two where the distortions aren't like similar enough, they just won't blend together. They'll phase out. It just, it just, it doesn't work. It sounds worse. Like, and sometimes you get a, like a magic combo, like a, 
like a JCM 800 and a, and a rectifier together. It's like a match made in heaven. You know, just blend those two together. And like, that's the sound of like the 90s and early 2000s. So I'll print, I'll print a bunch of different amps and then blend them together kind of as I go or while I'm mixing. Or in the rare case, if I have a lot of time, get the blend correct before I start and put it all to one track, old school. But yeah. So as far as setting up these multiple amp setups, like how do you go about determining like what settings you're going to use on what amp? Because I imagine that it can get very overwhelming because you can you can get such a range of sounds on with all of these amps, right? Yeah. I, so I set them up like each amp to sound kind of like how it would sound best for that amplifier. And then once I start combining, generally you're going to get like some positive or negative phase correlation between the amps. There may be like an abundance of like lower mid range. So you'll like start dialing back the mids or the low end on the amps to like where they play nicely together. And it's like, Oh, that's perfect. You know? And then if you go and you solo up one amp, you're like, that sounds horrible, you know, but in the blend with the other one, whatever it's doing phase wise is creating a benefit, you know? So yeah, so I'll just start out to where I think each one sounds good on its own and then sort of tailor it to to play nice with the other amp. Makes sense. Yeah, and typically, you know, people tend to buy amps because they, they have a specific sound in mind with each of these amps, right? So that's kind of your starting point, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you can get a lot of different sounds out of some amps, but some are just like, this is a Marshall, like, of this variety, and it sounds good when the gain's at six. You know, not a 10 and not a two, like six that's the that's the 900 that's where it goes you know kind of thing like and depending on the speaker cab too it's you know like generally the master volume at four is pretty good if i go to five or six it gets muddy and too thick or you know like so after you've done it you know numerous times you you kind of find the strength of each instrument or each you know piece of gear you can vary you know back and forth from there but for sure as far as gain settings go, do you typically lean more to like the cleaner side of things than the dirty side of things? Oh, I think probably maybe a little bit cleaner. Um, cause it seems punchier and it's easier to hear like the note value and like the, the differentiation and chords and whatnot. It depends on the song. It depends on, you know, the genre, all that stuff, you know, if you know early early fat record stuff like let's say take no effects like early no effects very distorted very bright and then the more like they go along mike likes his stuff cleaner and cleaner and cleaner like so that the tones are much cleaner even though the songs are kind of a similar style Mm -hmm. just but the tones have changed there you go that's kind of like tying into the earlier question of how do you give it that modern sound it's like same same elements just a little bit backed off you know yeah exactly um, so what about bass? Like, do you tackle bass kind of in a similar approach where you have multiple bass amps or do you just go DI or what's your approach there? Yeah, generally a lot, a lot of sources with the bass too. Um, like a DI, it's been like a, a sans amp pedal, uh, maybe a very clean bass amp and a very dirty bass amp. And you get all four of those together and sort of find some super happy spot that they all live together or, you know, like, oh, I got to turn up the distortion for the bass break. So I'll, you know, alter that while I'm mixing or something to boost the distorted sound. But I'll do that when I have a lot of time, you know, to spend on the bass. If I don't have a lot of time to spend on the bass, now with plugins, it's kind of sad to say, but you could just take a DI and 
put a Sansam plug-in on one and a an Ampeg plug-in on another, you know, and then there's like plugins called like auto align where you can phase align all these different multiple sourced instruments or cabs or bases or whatever and they play together really nice so you can kind of sort it out later. <laughs> it's generally best to get the best sound you can when you start. But the more technology evolves, the more you can kind of dig yourself out of a hole later on. Absolutely. I'm always fascinated with like auto align plugins because it just seems like, you know, like you said, like, you know, you always want to get the best source sound and people have been doing it that way forever. So are we changing the way we record now? Just like we're going to just time align everything. And I think we are changing the way we record now because you can because essentially when we're spending all that time before it's to get like if you're using a multiple sourced thing, you're trying to get it to phase up. And so you're either changing where the mic placement is or like the amount of EQ you're using or whatever, whatever is making these two different sources go well together. So now with something like auto line, you could almost go like, I really like the way the guitar sounds when the mic's like eight inches off the cab. It sounds great like that. But when I put it next to the other one where I got it right up on the grill, those two sound like garbage together. But I don't care because I'm going to put auto align on it and it's going to fix it all for me. And a lot of times it does and you get the best of both worlds, you know, and it's a it's a modern recording tool. And if you get over your ego or whatever like rule you have that you're telling yourself, no, I have to do it this way because that's how I've done it. Like, and just be like, no, this is a new tool and I'm getting the same end result. You can, you know, you can do it. Like I was saying originally, at the end of the day, nobody knows what you did. That You know, the record of the stream or whatever it is doesn't come with a picture of the recording and an explanation. Oh, we did this and we did that and we did that. Like they get the music. They don't care what you did. Like, does it kick ass or not? You know? So (laughs) you kind of have to do whatever you need to do to get there. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I love that, man. And like, I totally agree with you that just the, as the technology changes, people have to just embrace it. You have to embrace it. It's, yeah, you have to. You know, it's like, let's say you're doing something like, well, the Rolling Stones only use three mics to record the drums. And I was like, well, yeah, it's because they had to. They had a four-track machine, you know? Like, if the Rolling Stones were recording now or the Beatles or whatever, damn skippy they would be doing whatever the hell they could to get what, <laughs> you know, those sounds. Of course. Yeah, I mean, if it, yeah, if we had a Beatles record now, you know... It would be, be full, wild. Full, full of drum samples and all sorts oh, of yeah. crazy stuff. It know? would be wild. <laughs> It'd be like Radiohead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I, man, I love that. And yeah, it's like you you 100% have to move with the times and you know, when you listen to the radio and that kind of thing, like it's that's what people are hearing. So, you kind of have to give people what they're used to hearing. Yeah, unless you're trying to buck the trend, you know, and I guess it, it it all depends. It all depends on what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, 100%. Man, like so so the the blasting room, you guys have been around for what, almost 30 years now? Is it has it been 30? I think it's been 28. We started in like the summer of 94 crazy yeah it's been it's been a bit <laughs> <laughs> what is it about the blasting room do you think that keeps all of these great punk bands coming through the door uh it's probably generally the people that are making the records and not the gear you know Love it. that's probably probably 100 percent certain you know obviously gear and the conditions and the vibe and the environment like that all plays a part but 
the people making the record and like you know the ability for us to to get along with the band members like we've all been in bands so it's like we're kind of like dudes that are in the same boat as all these other band members but we like know a little bit more so it's like <laughs> i don't know it's, people feel comfortable you know with us and generally like our records are they turn out fairly well so yeah for sure that all makes sense and and yeah i mean you've built this you know sort of like legacy of working with all these big bands and and so of course people are gonna be hearing those records and wanting similar sounds and to work with the people that are behind those records too yeah 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 no we've been totally fortunate to work with the amount of people that we have yeah it's awesome um one thing i did want to ask you about is i know we've talked a lot about recording and uh some of your some some mixing as well but you're also tending to get into some more mastering projects these days from what I've seen. And yeah. I, know that, I know that not too long ago, you guys built a mastering room as well. So we did. Yeah. I'm curious to talk about like how you got into the mastering side of things. Was that just out of necessity or was that something that all along you wanted to do? N- no, it's definitely not. I didn't want to do it all along, but it was like maybe. So I started mastering in 98 and it was like basically the first bunch of records that we had done. We would get them back and be like, I could have swore there was a snare drum on this record when we sent it out. Where did it go? What <laughs> happened? You know, like what, what is this? And so we've, we've always been DIY pretty much about everything. We built this place, everything. So after we were open for a bit, it was kind of like, you know what, if somebody's going to ruin the record, I want to be the guy that, to ruin the record. So like, <laughs> you know, if I ruined it, I could at least be like, Oh, you're an idiot. You ruined it. Do it again, do it again, do it again. And so, we decided we were going to, you know, buy mastering software. So we bought Sonic Solutions in 98, which was very expensive back then. It was like the first DAW that I had worked on. Um, it took me months to figure out how to use the damn thing. <laughs> uh, and I bought a finalizer, a TC Electronics finalizer. And I just had those two pieces of gear. And I mastered, I don't know, hundreds of albums, if not thousands, <laughs> with that combo. Uh, and then the longer I got, you know, the deeper I got into mastering as a, as a thing, the more gear I would buy, different stuff I would try and and whatnot till, I don't know, I would, at least half of my job now is mastering, it seems like. So I get a lot of stuff to master from everywhere, from all kinds of people. And we built the mastering studio in uh, 2018, maybe. And I've done, I what I've, think is probably pretty good work before with minimal gear or doing it in the control room but now that i have a dedicated room that we paid a designer to do and have you know everything in here is super top-notch hq mastering proof you know i feel like i'm actually really starting to get good at it (laughs) finally (laughs) mastering is one of those funny things right it's like it's uh you know, there's a lot of different philosophies on on what makes a good master, and it, it can be easy to get in your head about whether you're doing the right thing with it. Yeah, absolutely certain. I, I feel like the more that I master, the the less that I do. When I started out, I think I probably did too much uh, and maybe treated it more like I was mixing the album, you know, and using too much gear or too much coloration. or And it didn't turn out bad, you know, but it was more like I was just, I don't want to just say for ego, but just just molding things the way I wanted to be, you know. But a lot of times with mastering, you don't 
you don't necessarily need to do that. You know, sometimes people send me stuff and it's so good. I, I just, I'm trying to not do anything to it because if anything that I do makes it sound worse sometimes. You know, it's almost like just leave it how it is. Like maybe I'll just turn it up like half a dB or, you know, whatever it is. And then since I got this room and I've got like a, a better monitoring situation for sure, I can A, B, mix and master just to the absolute same volume. And once you start doing that, it's like a whole different world. I mean, I've, I've done it forever, but now I have like a setup where I can really, really evaluate stuff quickly and accurately to be like, no, no, you're not better than the mix. You're, you're not better. Like, keep trying, you know, keep trying. You just, you're brighter. Yeah, cool. But it's not better, you know, once they're at the same volume. And a lot of times you, you always trick yourself with the volume. The volume tricks, tricks you every time. If you're more than a half a dB louder than something else, it doesn't matter if it sounds worse. If it's a half a dB louder, the brain picks it as better every time. <laughs> so, you, you know, so you, you totally have to AB stuff exactly at the same volume to make sure you're doing, you know, you're improve it, improving it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that really is the game of mastering for a lot of people, you know, like, so I guess there are some mastering engineers that go very extreme and, you know, they'll have massive boosts, but then other, it seems like the, the general consensus is like mastering is more a game of like subtleties and, and, you know, just little boosts here and there and that kind of thing. Oh yeah. It's kind of like the good guitar player, good drummer, good mix, good mix, do nothing, bad mix, do everything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you you work on something long enough, you know, you're like, oh, okay, I know this genre and I know what this is supposed to sound like. And this mix does not sound like that. Like this guy did it, you know, at home with a pair of headphones on because his guitars are so quiet because in stereo, you can hear the sides so much better with headphones on. So he didn't mix the guitars loud enough. I know he wants them, the guitars louder. So I'll use, you know, mid-side processing to bring up the guitar power to a, you know, a genre appropriate level, let's call it, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you can, some stuff you really do have to get really heavy handed on, but it's a lot of times it's, it's just knowing when to do nothing and to do a lot. And that's kind of the, that's the thing you have to get better at. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, sometimes doing just that little bit is actually a lot, you know, oh, yeah. it makes that big difference oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You could get a perfect mix and be like, I don't know what to do to this, you know, and then you'll find one little frequency, usually 333 Hertz, <laughs> right, <laughs> right around there. And you'll pull out like, you know, a half a DB of it. And you're like, holy shit, the mix opened up so much, you know, it's the same mix, but it's just a little bit better. Like just by doing <laughs> tiny little stuff. Yeah. I love it. Well, it's funny because, you know, at the beginning of this, we were talking about the idea of like questioning your skills and knowing if you're doing the right job. And it sounds like when it comes to the mastering side of things, it's also, you know, we're getting into that conversation a little bit again. And and you probably feel it a lot more in the mastering world because now you are going very more like you are going a lot more subtle with everything. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it's just it's really strengthening your ears to really know you know, how, how big of a difference you can make with, with little moves, right? With just, yeah, with just a little amount. I know I'll, I'll do a lot of mastering for, you know, people and they're like, I love it. What did you do? It sounded like, did you, did you compress it? Did you add a bunch of EQ? Did you do this? I'm like, um, 
I had this one piece of gear turned on and a limiter and I took out 0.5 at whatever. Oh my God, really? That's it? I'm like, yeah, that's like you get your gain staging correct. You know, you don't, it just, it, it just works. You know, you don't have to go nutty on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it takes for, you know, it takes a long, long time to figure out what to do, you know? Because when you start, you just want to do everything. You just want to do stuff, you know? It's not always better. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure if you looked back at, like, some of the earliest masters you did versus, like, how you work now, it'd be just night oh, and yeah. day. It's kind of radically different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. Well, man, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but, dude, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And, and man, it just it's so great to hear your insights into the, everything. And, you know, it's kind of funny because, like, punk has this reputation as kind of being this, like, kind of sloppy genre or whatever like you know it's like it's very on edge or whatever and, and right I, I think the way you've been describing your process it's like it's kind of refreshing to hear because it's like no we we do have to take this serious and you know it is like we we care about tuning we care about timing and you know which oh, yeah. obviously oh, it should, yeah. it should be right and and yeah it, it's the reason why the music sounds the way it does and why these bands that have come through the blasting room have been awesome and and have made great records because you, you care about it it's not just about the perception of you know, <laughs> no, yes, thing, yes. right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a lifetime of dedication. <laughs> yes. So that was my interview with Jason Livermore, and it was really great to learn more about his process and how analytical he is when it comes to tracking different instruments. And I loved everything that he had to say there about, you know, preserving the feel of drummers and establishing how you're going to track the drums so that they have movement, but that they still sound tight. And I thought it was really cool how he talked about doing pre-production and really mapping out tempos before a band gets in there so that you can feel the band having that energy between verses and choruses, but everything still sounds tight and locked in because it has been recorded to a click track and you can edit it to a grid. And I also thought it was kind of fun to talk a little bit about how he uses Evertune bridges with their guitars and how that has saved him tons of time. Evertunes are one of those things that has definitely been on my list of gear that I would love to acquire at some point because I just think it's such a cool technology, and if you're not familiar with it, definitely look it up, but it's a really great way of keeping your guitars in tune so that you never have to worry about tuning in between takes, and like he said, he, he said it saved him half of his recording time, and I think that for anyone who's in this industry and who's trying to make a living recording bands, you'll know that you know time is money with this kind of stuff, and you certainly don't want to spend hours and hours just tuning like that that's not fun at all right so i just thought it was really cool to hear about how they've implemented evertune bridges into their recording process and how it's helped them just make records faster and make better records with it as well so i just thought that was a really fun interview and i loved hearing about his entire process so jason if you're listening to this thank you once again for being on here this was a lot of fun and for you the listener i hope that you enjoyed this as well and that you got a lot of great value out of this as well and definitely make sure to implement some of the stuff that Jason was talking about here. There's a lot of cool ideas that we've talked about, you know, when it comes to tuning or guitar amps and that kind of stuff. And there's some things in here that you can definitely experiment with to try to find what works best for your own recording. So I highly encourage you to listen back to this interview, make some notes, and then next time you go to record songs, try these out and see what works for you. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each week. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com because on there I've got lots of great resources designed to help you with making pro sounding recordings from your home studio. And while you're there, definitely make sure to check out The Mixing Mindset. That is my book that I put out a while ago where Insider break down the process of 
mixing your music step by step, showing you what to be listening for, what tools to use, how to dial in settings, what steps to take along the way. That way you know exactly what to do and you can get the sounds that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers so you can make records that you ultimately love and that you can release. So once again, that's called the Mixing Mindset and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we are officially at the end. Thanks again for hanging around to the very end and I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. Talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.